with you, right? So James chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And we're going to share a thought today we're going to call the God you can depend on. And so our theme this week is dealing with the immutability of God. That's the big theological word, right? The words that we never use. But as you think of the never-changing God, what does that maybe spark in your mind? Is there a thought or is there a comfort or is there a peace? Like when you think that God never changes, what does that, what does that first initiate in you? And feel free to respond here. He's always there, okay? Never changes. He's the rock. You can always trust him. He never fails. Anybody else? The God that never changes? You're probably thinking something, right? And maybe we'll touch on that here in just a minute. But uh, I hope that that does spark something in you when you think that God, he never changes. Right? We're going we're gonna to work our way through that today. So the big word is immutable. You can share that with your friends and brag about you know, the big words that you know. But really it helps when we break it down, right? We make it simple and on our level where we can talk with one another. Um, so let's talk here a little bit. Everything that we experience on this planet seems to change. So what are some things in your life that has changed, maybe for the better or maybe not? What's the change that you've went through that's just been part of your life? I'll start. My hair color has changed. <laughs> My hair has never been as shiny as it is right now. <laughs> is there something about you that has changed? Wrinkles. It's just wisdom, right? Those are earned. Change. All right. So parenting has had to change kind of seasons there. Landry, do you have something? No? Oh, I saw you raise your hand. I'm just asking. You've been called out in church. <laughs> so lots of things about us change. Okay? Uh, our height changes. How many of you are shorter than you were years ago? All right? So some of that's true. How many of you are taller than you were years ago? And so we've got some going this way and we've got some going this way. Right? I'm on the this side of things now. I feel like I'm declining a little bit. Um, so that changes. Our, our weights tend to fluctuate and change. That's just par for the course for being on this planet. So when we look at ourselves personally, those things always change. What about your level of understanding? Has that changed? Maybe you understand specific subjects more or you understand God more, better. Maybe you understand yourself better. So there's been some changes in your level of understanding or ability to make good decisions or to reason. Uh, how many of you can remember being a young child? Just remember being smart. Like, what happened? We've just changed, right? I remember Miss Louise. That always comes to mind when I think of her. She's 97 years old uh, in a nursing home, and she can remember twirling in her mom's, like, little shop when she was five. And she could talk, tell you the songs that were playing on the radio and the people who were coming in. Uh, it was just as vivid in her mind as that point there at being 97. Um, 
So what happened? Well, she just changed. Just a matter of time. And so lots of ways that we change. Um, and we've, ex we've experienced those changes. How many of you are still working at your first job? None of us? All right. So that has changed over the course of time. Um, how many of you remember having young children at home? Miss Stephanie mentioned that right now. Her season has changed. Our season has changed. Do you remember having young children at home? The process of getting up in the middle of the night and getting bottles maybe or changing diapers. And so that, that time was real for many of us in this room and that time has since passed, right, for some in this room. And for some, that's just future for you, you know, if, if, the, if that's part of how God leads your life. So lots of things change. Lots of things um, remind us that we live in an ever-changing world. Anybody hot this morning? Did you turn your air conditioner on? Right, so the weather has changed pretty significantly. We're in the 90s here this week. Uh, days change, so it's night and then it's day. Uh, right now, there's a clock and every second is just ticking. And it's just a reminder every second that everything is always changing as it relates to us here. Scientists will even tell us that uh, all throughout the day, our bodies have cells that are dying. And we have cells that are multiplicating or, multipl or replicating themselves or making new ones. Uh, so we're constantly, even right now, we're going through a, a change just as we're sitting here. So in a world that always changes, does it give you any comfort that God doesn't? Right, that he is that rock. Hopefully today that's what we'll see. Uh, that as we experience change here, God is consistent. He's steady. He's like the song said, he's the rock on which we stand. Uh, he's that unchanging presence in our life. And so let's go to James chapter 1. Look here at this God that James is going to remind us of that we can depend on. And so James is recorded as probably the oldest New Testament book. James was the half-brother of Jesus. James didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection, at least that he was the Messiah. And then James became one of the pillars, is what Paul wrote, of the church of Ephesus. And so he went from an unbeliever, this is my older brother Jesus, he can't be God, to yeah, he is God, and I'm going to live my life telling others about this Messiah. And he became one of the front runners um, for that New Testament church. So this book, most scholars estimate Jesus ascended around A.D. 30, and they placed this book around A.D. 45 or so. Uh, so it's, it's really close to the time period of when Jesus ascended. You guys know there's nothing else on the planet like the New Testament, right? I mean, Old Testament as well, but the New Testament has more evidence outside of itself than anything else in all of history. Now, there are some pieces of literature that we treasure as classics and people that we honor as classic poets, and we have less than five copies of their work. And when it gets to the New Testament scriptures, we have thousands, like uh, 5,700 copies of just New Testament scriptures alone. So what they say is if you could stack, uh, I just lost his name right now. Anyway, his writings would equal about an inch. But if you stack all the evidence of the writings of the New Testament, it would reach about a mile in the sky. So all, all it says is there's more evidence for Jesus existing, walking the planet, uh, for these people that we're talking about today, James, existing, than there is anybody else or anything else of that time period actually being real or being true. As a matter of fact, we learn a lot about James from a secular historian named Josephus. Josephus wrote about Jesus Christ. He wrote that he was crucified publicly. He wrote that 
His followers said he was resurrected. He wrote that the tomb was empty. And then he wrote about this guy named James who was going to go around uh, as the brother of Jesus telling others that Jesus was the Messiah. So not necessarily a believer himself, just writing down information as it happened in his day, kind of like a journalist would do in our day. Doesn't necessarily make them a believer in what they're reporting on. They're just simply reporting what they see or experience. What are the facts? So James here is going to write this letter, short letter, Lots of challenges here, though, and he's going to challenge us to not only be people of faith, but people who demonstrate that faith by our works. So that's kind of a prominent theme of this. You might remember the verse that says, how silly it is to look in a mirror and then walk away and forget what you look like. So that's the same way people are who say they love God and have faith, but their, their life doesn't show any evidence of that. Um, but within the, just prior to that, that verse actually is where we're going to camp most this morning, 16, 17, 18, but we're going to start in verse 13. Uh, so... You can follow along in your Bible or it's uh, on the wall for your uh, convenience there as well. So beginning in verse 13, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he has created. So within this text here, we're going to look into the unchanging God and note a few ways that this should impact our lives. Part of our studies this morning, we're dealing with the unchanging God, right? He cannot be manipulated. He does not lie. What we're looking at some t today as well are some things that uh, should challenge us. If God never changes, what does that mean for us today? All right. So as always, you can follow along in your bulletin if you would so choose. We'll highlight a few of these here today. So number one is this. The God who never changes is going to challenge us to think rightly, to think rightly about him, to think right thoughts of him, to say what is true about who he has said that he is and who we are in him. So Within what we just read, evidently there was a, an opportunity to be deceived. Because James is going to address these guys and say, hey, listen, don't, don't be deceived. And so here's some of the ways that the word that James wrote tells us that they were going to be deceived. There were, there were some people who were saying that God is the author of sin. There were some people who were saying that God is the one who tempts us to sin. There were some who were saying that God is the cause of the evil in the world. And if he's evil or he's the cause of it, then how can he be a good God? How can he be holy? How can he be worthy of love and affection? Like these two things just don't jive. They don't mix. And so James is trying to clarify something for these early Christians. If you read the first couple verses of James 1, it says he wrote this to people who have been scattered. To the believers who've been scattered. So persecution had come. These Jewish Christians had fled. And he's writing to encourage their faith. You're living among people who think differently about God. You're living among people who want you to think differently about God. He's an evil God. He's the cause of evil. He's the one who tempts you to sin and therefore you shouldn't trust him. And he says, in light of this, know some things. Verse 16, he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. That is, don't be deceived into thinking that God is the author of sin or he's the cause of evil. What about our day and time? Does that ring true? Are there worldviews now that would say the same thing? 
Are there people in our country, are there media outlets who would uh, say the same thing? Are there universities that would support this way of thinking? Absolutely. Right? So our day and time is not any different than the time of these early Christians that James was addressing. So we can take the same warning to heart here this morning. Do not be deceived into thinking that God is the author of sin. Instead, we just need to think rightly. Think rightly about who, who God is. And, and here's why that's important. The way that I think will influence the way that I live. And so in just a few minutes, you're going to walk out these back doors. Why? Because your mind is going to tell your body, it's time to get up and go. And so the way you think influences the way that you live. So nobody's just going to randomly just start walking around the room. And I don't know why I'm walking around. I don't know why I'm leaving. I don't want to leave. My mind's not telling me. It doesn't work that way. We do, most of the time, things that are connected to our mind. Now, sometimes we don't think. And that's when we use the phrase, I just wasn't thinking. All right? I acted before thinking. But most of the time, what we do is based on how we think. And so this is important to think rightly about God because it will influence how we live our life for him. Now, what are some things that contribute to us thinking incorrectly? When is it that we find ourselves being deceived? Like, a lot of the time, I'm the worst deceiver in my mind. I don't need your help. I don't need the enemy. I don't need the adversary. I'm pretty good at, at buying into my own opinion. You know, people have talked about that book of the Bible, First and Second Opinions. I think we cling to that. At least I cling to that sometimes. Like, this is my truth, and this is my experience, and this is what I'm going through, and if this is true... And this is what God says, and these two don't measure up, then sometimes I put more faith in what I'm experiencing than in what my God has said. You never do that? Right? See, it's easy to believe, and it, well, it's easy to understand what immutable means. God never changes. Right? Nothing complicated there. It's difficult to walk out of here and live in light of that and to believe that to be true. And usually that's the case when I have had some sort of negative effect in my life. It makes me start to think incorrectly about who God is, about my situation, or maybe who I am in God. And so here's some emotions that tend to drive me, and maybe they drive you. Have you ever been angry? Have you ever had anger that worked in you that you felt justified expressing? And even though the Bible says don't express your anger, be angry and don't sin, we felt like it was appropriate to be angry and it's okay to sin in my anger. Because my situation made me feel such a way that this is right. And so my moment trumped what was true. Right? So it's important not only to understand what's right, but to be able to think rightly in moments like that. What about discouragement? Have you ever been so discouraged that you thought in ways that weren't true? Have you ever had a thought, God doesn't love me? God doesn't care for me? God doesn't hear me when I pray. God's not changing me. Right? So sometimes something happens in life and it gets us on the discouraged side of life and we start living there rather than speaking what's right, what's true. And so I can deceive myself because what I'm currently experiencing is discouraging me. Other things like loneliness can drive me to think incorrectly. Fear. Fear is a big one for me. And you know that well about me. I'm sure that it's been one of those dominating or tried to be a dominating force in my life to this day. It wants to run me. It wants to tell me who I am and what I can and can't do. 
and tell me who God is and what God can and can't do based on what I think can be done. And so fear can cause me to think incorrectly. Worry, embarrassment, all these sorts of things can cause us to think incorrectly. So let's just put this in a scenario. Let's say somebody has a job. You and I are working somewhere and we lose that job and we're trying to get employed somewhere else and we can't. And yet, our bank still wants to be paid for our cars. And they're still expecting a payment on our house. And we're in agreement. We should pay it. We just can't. And so maybe they show us some grace, but the day comes and they show up and they tow our cars away. And the day comes and they tell us, you've got to get out of your house because we're going to foreclose on your home. Those are bad days, right? Uh, Christian people have experienced days like these. Maybe you've experienced something like this. In a moment like that, what are you starting to think about your God? Some people get on the side of life that says, if God loved me, or if he was a good God, then he wouldn't allow this to happen to me. And so because this happened to me, then I guess he's not good, or he doesn't care, or maybe he doesn't even exist. Right? So my situation and the heaviness of the moment is determining what's true for me rather than me speaking what's actually true. Is God the cause of evil? No. Is God the tempter of sin? No. That's what the Bible says. And yet sometimes I just don't speak truth in my situation as I should. What about when you're heartbroken? You've got these dreams and you've got these plans and you're motor in this direction and something comes and hits you and just changes your plans. God, are you there? I mean, I've tried to honor you. I've been trying to be disciplined in my uh, personal life. Why has this happened to me? This seems so unfair. This seems out of character for you, God. Maybe you've just, maybe I've done something to cause you to be angry with me. And maybe we start playing the sin game. Remember Job's wife? What'd she say after all the calamity to Job? Did she say he's a good God? Did she say let's love and worship this God? No, she said why don't you curse God? How can you still trust and believe in a God who would allow things like this to happen? He can't be a good God. He can't have our best interests at heart. What's Job say? He says the Lord is given. The Lord is taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Right? Job thought rightly about his situation. And it changed his outlook on his situation. When my situation defines what's true, when my situation defines what's true, it will run me. And ultimately it will ruin me. But when my God defines what's true for my situation, then I can begin to think rightly. You know, I've talked with people who've had diseases that's just slowly taken their life. Why me? What have I done? I don't deserve this. No, you don't. Why not me? I don't know. I have a good friend. His wife passed away here not very, very many years ago from disease. Why? Sweet woman. I don't, I don't know. And I can't answer that. But can I still say what's true in the situation? Yes. Does this make God evil? No. Does this mean that God is uh, mad at you? No. I mean, there's things that happen in a cursed world that we just can't explain. And why you, not me, I don't know. My day's coming, and I'm going to be in that same boat. Why me and not you? And so it's important that we learn to think rightly. It's important that we help speak truth to one another to think rightly in our situations. Because we can easily be deceived. 
Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. God is not the author of sin. He doesn't tempt you and he doesn't create evil. That's not who he is. You know, this week I was reading an article of a guy, and I really respect, he's an atheist, but I respected his opinion. You know, sometimes people that don't believe in God are really brash and brutal and harsh towards Christians. And he was not this guy. He just said, based on the evidence that I see, I can't believe that God exists. And he had a struggle between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. In his mind, the God of the Old Testament is harsh, cruel, he's a tyrant. And the God of the New Testament is loving and forgiving. He has all these great teachings like, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Pray for your enemies, love those who hate you. Like lots of high standards to hold us to. That's great. But in his eyes, these were two different gods and he couldn't reconcile those. The only way he did to say is, I guess a man wrote this about this God and a man wrote this about this God and they're not the same God and so God can't exist. If they're going to say this is who he is, he can't be both at the same time, so he can't exist, so there is no God. And it's easy to see how somebody could get there. I'm reading through the Old Testament right now. I'm in uh, the middle of Deuteronomy. And just coming, heading to the point where God's getting ready to drive out some of the inhabitants of the promised land. And sometimes I read that and think, you know, why are all these people being killed? You know, the, these Canaanites and these... Amorites and all the ites that are listed there. Why are they all being killed? What do they do? And scripture makes it very clear. This was the, the people, the Hebrew people were moving in not because they were good. God was using the Hebrew people to bring about judgment because of all the sin that was in this land. Well, and he had problems with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Is that true? Yeah. What about God flooding the earth? Did that really happen? Killed everybody but eight people? Yeah. Isn't that right? That's what the play tells us anyway. More importantly, that's what the Bible tells us. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Did God actually destroy that city? Well, we would say, yeah, he did. You talk about the promised land. Did that happen? Well, yeah. Uh, the people there being killed. Does God really believe? And Is God really going to condemn people to hell? Will they go to hell for their unbelief? Well, yes. So if you just stop there... And you put this Old Testament way of thinking, so to speak, with the New Testament. You've got a God who loves and forgives and all this. And you've got a God over here who's judging and who's killing people, men, women, and children. You know, he's cast Adam and Eve out. He drowned everybody by what? Like, those are two very different gods in his mind. The only problem is he's not thinking rightly about the whole context of the story. Did Adam and Eve sin? Yes. Is God always going to bring justice for sin? Yes, he's holy. If he doesn't, he's not worth our affection or worship. What did God do to... Well, let me just start. Did God provide a way of salvation for Adam and Eve? Ah, yes, he did. See, the guy wasn't thinking that. The first death recorded is in the clothing of Adam and Eve. An animal was killed so they could be clothed by God. Do you remember that story? Part of the story? So you've got God providing what was needed for them through death. The first picture, the first glimpse of the gospel. And God also put an angel in front of the tree of life. Why? Because he's angry at them and he said, you can't if you're going to eat that fruit. No, to protect them. He wanted them to be able to die so then they could have the possibility of eternal life. If you eat the tree of life and live eternally as a sinful person, I've got no help for you. But if the wages of sin is death and Adam and Eve, you die and I've protected that so you can have eternity then you can have eternal life with me. So 
in the story of Adam and Eve. Did they get thrown out of the garden? Yes, but that's not the whole context of the story. God did provide. He was patient. And he did provide a way of salvation for them. What about Noah? And we've talked about that before. Like the sometimes, and even here for a while, our church nursery was decorated and had all the pretty animals and all that. You know, I heard a guy preach one time and said, you know, why don't we decorate it what it really looked like with people drowning and screaming and crying out for help? Like, you don't want that in your kid's nursery. That creates nightmares. Um, but that's the truth of the story. But is that the whole truth? No. It took Noah over a hundred years to build the ark. You know what Noah did while he was building the ark? Peter said he was a preacher of righteousness and repentance. And so he's going around saying, this is who God is and this is the right way to live and you need to repent. And the people were saying what? No. Did God provide a way for them to be saved from the flood? Yes. What's it called? The ark. Nobody wanted on. That is until the, until the rain started coming. So you've got to look at the whole context of the story. God's the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New. Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember there, Abram crying out, if there's 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? And what did God say? Sure. What about 40? And he goes all the way down to, what if there's just 10? Would you still spare it? Absolutely. Did the city get spared? No. Why? Because this is judgment for sin. Like all these people that were delivered, Lot and his family, they were provided for by angels. Right? So God provided their deliverance while he still brought judgment on sin. So there was patience and there was provision there. In all these stories, Rahab and her family came out of the nation of Israel going into the promised land. She was a non-Jew. She was a Gentile. And God, she's in the family lineage of Christ. Right? There's opportunities there for people to repent. And the same thing is true with Jesus. We are sinners and we're stuck with our sinful condition and our own capabilities, but God provided Jesus to deal with our sin so that we could then be forgiven and made right with God. Is God patient? Yes, he is. Alright, remember Peter wrote and said, God's not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. Now that question prior to that was, if God is God, basically, if he's going to strike evil people with lightning, why hasn't he struck yet? Because he's patient. He's not willing. It's not his desire that people perish. And so he's patient. He provides a way. He's the same God in the old and the new. All I'm saying about this guy is you wish you could just sit and talk and have an open conversation and he'd be willing to at least look at the truth and to say what's right. See, up to this point in his life, he's been deceived. And so I don't know what may be fueling that for him. Maybe he had a loved one in his life that had something really bad happen to them, and he thought, I just, I got to find a way to deny the existence of God because a loving God wouldn't act that way. Maybe you've been there as well. But through our situations, we may get struck, you know, in that emotional chord. But what's true is that God never changes. And so two things before we move on. One, Speak what you're feeling. God knows it anyway. Can you pour out your heart in anger? Yeah. Can you pour out your heart in frustration? Yes. Can you cry out, this isn't fair. I, I, I hate this. I don't, I don't want this at all, God. This is not part of my plan. God already knows it. Right? He sees beyond our lips. He knows what's on our hearts. So we may pray the pretty prayer, God, I love you. But inside I'm thinking, 
I just can't stand you right now. Be honest with God, but then also go the next step and say what's true. You are God, and you never change. And no, I didn't want this to happen. But in some way, you will redeem this. In some way, you will work this for good. And I rest this with you. I rest myself with you. I may not ever understand it, but I trust in the never-changing God. See, it's good for us to depend on a God who never changes. So the God who never changes is going to challenge us to think rightly in every situation. And we're going to be faced with a lot of them to think in ways that are not right. All right, secondly, the God who never changes is going to continue to offer good and perfect gifts. And so to contrast the evil, right? God's not the author of evil. He doesn't cause it. He's not the one who tempts us. On the flip side, he says, he's not evil. He's good. And he doesn't bring evil. He brings everything that's good. Every good and perfect gift is from him. So whatever is good is of God. Whatever is good is of God. Just like the sun gives light, does the sun give light? That's all it does. You don't get rain from the sun. It just, it does what it does. The sun gives light. God gives good gifts. That's just what he does. Every good and perfect gift is attributable to him, not to ourselves. And so I love that he's the author of every good and perfect gift. But how terrible would it be if, if God built shelves all around the world and said, look at all the good gifts that I've created, but you just can't have them. A good author of good gifts, right? But he's not just the author of it. What is he? He's the giver. He's the giver, right? Every good and perfect gift is from above. And then what's it do? It comes down. Right? He's the one who's created the good gifts. But he's also the one who gives the good gifts. It comes from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Uh, so James is going to write here and say, God is this Father of lights and nothing in him ever changes. And this God who never changes is also the author of every good and perfect gift. So he's worthy of every praise that we could give. But he's the giver of every good and perfect gift as well. And so what are some of these gifts? What are some things that you appreciate in nature? Anything? Fall leaves. Right? That's the mind of God. So we can we can appreciate that and let our hearts be caught up in God is a good God. What else do you appreciate in, in just what he has made? This time of year I think of flowers. Lots of flowers are starting to bloom and come out of the ground and they're at all these stores now and, and you look at that, man, what a mind to think about all these different colors and shapes heights and how they can breed and just it's amazing the mind the creative mind of God to to think in such a way is just incredible I don't have that kind of mind Mr. Adler he has a very creative mind I just I don't have it I can see it and appreciate it but to try to come up with something like that to me is is so God and to me it shows the hand of God in people's life I think of water. I don't know why, but I'm just drawn to water. I love the ocean and rivers. I love springs. Those things, they just, they speak to me. It just makes me think God thoughts. And so I appreciate his creation. When you look at the human body, like how, how it all functions, how it's all intertwined and works, and it's doing all sorts of things right now that you and I don't even know that it's doing. But it's doing that because it's been crafted and fashioned in such a way to do that very thing. 
just amazing. Right? Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so when you think about good gifts, then we should, we should think of God. Now what are some other gifts? Those are in nature. God gives gifts of providence. The Bible says that he gives rain and he gives sun. And listen, that's for the just and the unjust. He cares for all these people. He provides food and shelter, clothing for all people. Because he cares about his creation. And so every good and perfect gift there is from God. We can think about his grace. Now some people say it's good. Mr. Newton thought it was better than good, right? What did he write? He said it is amazing. It's amazing grace. John wrote and said he gives grace upon grace, time after time. Paul wrote and said, the only thing that I am is because of the grace of Christ at work in me. And his work is powerful and it's strong and it's my energy, it's my life force. So he gave great boasts to God on behalf of the work of Christ in him. So we could think about all sorts of ways that God has given good and perfect gifts. You know, as people are made, when we started, well, God blessed us with children. You know, we had two, then we had three, and my wife would say, I didn't realize there was a third opposite. Like, how can there, I can see, you know, two sides of a coin, but where's the third side? Like, how can there be a third different? It just, it was puzzling. And yet you think, this is how God has fashioned, and this is how he's created, and this is how he's gifted different individuals, their personalities, their little temperaments, everything about them. He's fashioned and shaped, ultimately to be shaped into the likeness of his son, Jesus. Uh, but coming through the Old Testament has been good for me because when you look initially at how people had the ability to sew, you know where they got that from? They were going to make the curtains for the temple. What the Bible says, and, and God gave them the ability to do so. I couldn't, but they could. Why? Because God gave it to them. And so they could sit there and say, man, thank you, God. Every good gift that I have has come from you. And God gave some people the ability to play instruments or to sing. And then for other people, they can't play an instrument to save their life. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It's the way God is gifted. And so we don't take credit for that and think, oh, look at me. We say, oh, thank you, God. Every good gift has come from you. Thank you for how you've gifted me. And we give credit back to the Lord for that. He talked about people who could uh, carve things out of wood. Carpenters were given the gift to be carpenters. Metal workers were given the gift to be able to be metal workers and to create steel rods for this temple. It, it was just everything that was going to need to take place, God was going to gift different people to do it. Right? So everything that we have is just simply something that should direct us back to God. So a God who never changes then is this God who continues to offer, right? He continues to offer his good and perfect gifts. They're continually flowing. He continues to pour it out. It's not something he once did. It's something he's still doing in, in my life and in your life. You know, he's mentioned as the father of lights. There's that phrase in there, shadow of turning. Right, we sang that this morning, great is thy faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with thee. So that comes straight out of James 1.17 here. So anytime you think of a shadow, you know what I should be thinking now? God's not like a shadow. Have you seen those videos that they kind of fast forward? And maybe it's like a cityscape and there's a shadow. Like I've seen it of the arch before. 
And so you've got a picture of the arch and the shadows here, and then as the day goes, and the shadow just keeps going and going. This looks like it's live, you know, when you can speed it up. And then the next day it just keeps coming back around. Right? Shadows are just reminders that things change all the time. Everything in here is shifting. But when I look at a shadow here, what James says is, let it remind you that God never changes. Shadows always shift. God never changes. He's not like a shadow. He's the exact opposite of that. And as the father of lights, one commentator said it this way. He says, he's given us the light of the natural world. The sun, the moon, the stars shining in the heavens. How often are you caught up in amazement at just the beauty of a midnight sky? We're about to go to camp. And I tell you every year, one of my favorite times is to stand out in that field out in the middle of nowhere and look up at night and just be caught up in how small I am and how just vast and amazing God is. And the sky paints that portrait for me year after year. This commentator said it's one of the things that should cause us to praise. He's the father of lights. He's given us the light of the natural world. But he's also given us the light of conscience and reason. He's given us the light of his law, the light of prophecy that would shine in a dark place. He's given us the light of his gospel and the light of apostles and confessors and martyrs who would go around preaching the gospel to all the nations. He's given us the light of the Holy Spirit to shine in our hearts and he's given us a glimpse of the light which will be our eternal home. The father of lights, the author of lights, the one who never shifts like a shadow. Lots of good gifts, and our Father is the author of every one of them, and he still offers. Just like shadows come, God still offers good and perfect gifts. So those are things we need to know and live in light of as well. And then third and last here this morning, and quickly, the God who never changes, what's he do? He changes. The God who never changes, changes those who look to his word. The God who never changes looks to those who look to, or changes those who look to his word. So parents tend to often tell their children, don't go to the extremes. Don't say always and don't say never. Okay, but with God you can do that. God never changes and he always changes. In his personal character, in his attributes, in his essence, he is absolute, never changes. And there is no shadow of turning with thee. However, the God who is at work in our lives always changes. And he's always changing me and he's changing you. You know that song we sing ancient words, ancient words ever true. What's the next line? Changing me and changing you, right? He is ever at work. So he never changes, but his creation is always for those who are his and look to him in his word are constantly being changed. And so James relates that to like a second birth. Once we were alive, but here's the newness. We were born and we've inherited this sin nature, but in Christ, where there's faith, we are made new. The old is gone, Paul wrote and said, the new has come. James wrote it this way. He said, he, speaking of God, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. The working of God in the life of a person who has faith in him is as we look to his word, he continues to bring about change, transformation. That big word like immutable is the word sanctification. It's that I'm growing in the likeness of Christ. I'm becoming less like my old self and more like him. And so here God's being credited with movement, with change, moving from death to life, moving from my old self 
to becoming more like his son. And so he's the renovator. He's the renovator of our hearts. He's the renovator of our minds. He's constantly changing us. Constantly. And to me, that's a good word. That word continually or constantly as I think about being changed. Because there's going to be times in your life as a Christian where you don't feel like you're being changed. Have you been there? Maybe you feel like you're taking steps backwards. And I really thought I had a grip on this habit. I really thought I had a grip on my mouth. I really thought I had a grip on this temptation and it's creeping back in my life. So sometimes we may think I'm, I'm regressing, I'm moving backwards. And yet God's work in the life of a believer is that he's always moving us forward. For those who look to him in his word, those who are trusting in him to be changed, he's continuing to do the prominent work, his prominent work, of shaping us to be more like his son. So in a world that always changes, that can make us a little bit unnerved. But knowing for the believer that God is the one who is changing us, and that satisfies me because I want to be changed. All right? I'm not done yet. Are you done yet? I'm about done preaching, don't misunderstand me, or teaching. But I'm not done being fashioned. I'm not done being shaped. And there's still a lot of work that God's got to do. I'm not who I once was, and that's all owed to grace. God is the author and giver of every good and perfect gift. That's his work in me, but I'm not who I'm going to be yet either. And so I look forward in hope, and I live each and every day knowing that even though I can't see it every day, he's at work. And as I look to him in his word, and as I lean on him, and I'm asking him to change me, he is doing that very work. That's what his spirit does. His spirit doesn't fail. He doesn't compromise with us. He doesn't say, hey, let me give you part of the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of nine, how about four and a half? Is that good? No. He doesn't compromise. I want all of this to be birthed and to grow and to develop in you. And so here James writes and says, for those who look to him and his word, that word of truth, they've been, they've been given new life and this new life is continuing to change them consistently by a God who never changes. So it sounds like we've got a God we can depend on because he never changes. He's, he's immutable. And what that should cause us to do, church, it should cause us to think rightly and speak rightly over our situation. And to do that, I've got to know what's right. I've got to be planted and established in the word of God. I need people surrounding me who can point me to what's true when everything in my life wants to speak deceit. We're also reminded that rather than trusting in our own opinions, all right, we've got to be people who look to God and his word to let our mind be settled there, to find that peace, that second, uh, that, 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 that initial truth, but that, uh, that second reminder. Uh, in the midst of my situation, my fear says this, but my God says this. We've also reminded ourselves that he's the giver of every good and perfect gift and that whatever he started, he'll finish. Because he's continuing to change those who look to him in his word. So if that's you and I, then that work is current. He's progressing. All right? Uh, maybe for us today, it's just a partner with that. And so, God, you're wanting to do this work in my life. Maybe there's a sin that I need to unleash. I need to be honest about. I need to ask forgiveness over. Maybe there's someone I need to approach and seek their forgiveness because I've wronged them. I've held a grudge against them. I have intentionally hurt them. Maybe unintentionally hurt them. However, God's directing your heart there. That's for your good and mine as well. 
as he's trying to shape us more like himself. So, are you living in light of the unchanging God? How do we answer that? Do you understand that he's still offering good and perfect gifts, grace upon grace? And can you walk out of here today with full confidence that he is at work in me? He's a finisher. He doesn't start something and then not complete it. He'll bring it to completion. We've got a role to play in partnering with that. Don't quench. Don't resist. But he's the one that all credit is due because he's the one that brings about the authentic change.